My name is Jarrell Story. I am um, a pastoral intern here for the summer. Um, I'll be doing the scripture reading from the book of John, um, chapter 4, verses 1 through 26, verse 28, and then 39 through 42. Move this a little bit. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near a field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will not be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water willing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have five husbands, and the one you have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you said that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You will worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for the salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming. And is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. So the woman left her water jar and went into the town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. This is the word of the Lord. All right, amen. Thanks to all for reading of God's word. Uh, praise the Lord. My name is Josh Kim, and I'm one of the assistant pastors 
story of Christ Central Church, as our Pastor Mari shared with us, um, our senior pastor is on a break. And during the time that he's away, Pastor Omari and I are preaching through a sermon series called A Community, A Mess Worth Making. Uh, in fact, last week we started this by talking about belonging. What does it mean for you to belong to a community like our church? And today we're going to talk about what it means to be vulnerable, what it means to share our lives with one another in a community setting like this. I actually really appreciated uh, what Pastor Omari shared before during announcement about the General Assembly and the updates that he shared with us. In fact, I'm a proud graduate of Covenant Theological Seminary, and um, the, part of the reason why I was able to come and be connected to Christ Central was because Pastor Howard and I went to the same seminary. So it may seem like a, such a distant thing for a lot of us here, um, but for, uh, for our church and for the health of our church, I think it's very important for us to, to know this thing, to send our pastors to go there to be involved in that. And thank you, Pastor Mark, for sharing that news with us. Um, as we think about what it means to be a community in our church, uh, we're going to spend next several weeks talking about different aspects of how to build a church of Christ at this church, as well as the places that where you're called to go to. And last week, we talked about you belong here. Uh, despite your background, what you believe, what you, you might have led to believe, and what, what background, or what socioeconomic background, what racial background you may be, we encourage you that you belong here and join us as we discuss what it means to be redefined by the gospel what it means to believe in Jesus Christ as our Lord, and what it means to build a community based upon that. And today, we're going to talk about what it means for us to be vulnerable, vulnerable with one another, what it means to share our lives with one another in an open way. Uh, when I was younger, it was one of the moments that could have defined our relationship. I had a friend of mine uh, that really shared everything together. We loved listening to the music together. We loved just doing a lot of silly stuff as the young kids do. We love just hanging around, eating good food together, and doing all these things together. And there was a moment in our relationship where we realized that if we, either we could go deeper in our friendship with one another, or we could drift apart. And I really, really wrestled with sharing with them some of the deepest things that I struggle with in my heart. And finally, after a long time of wrestling, do I share this with them? Because I want to be deeper friends with them, or do I not share and just keep these things at a superficial level? So finally, after a long time of wondering, will he accept me as I am? I sat him down, and I basically told him, hey, I really like Britney Spears. <laughs> and she said, what? You're like, who? And this is a friend that we're listening to all the music together, right? We're listening to all this different music, the manly music as we talk about. And I told him, hey, I really like Britney Spears. We're like, oops, I did it again. I like that. That's my tune. <laughs> and you know what he said? And he finally said something I've been longing in my heart to hear. He said, what? You too? I thought I was the only one. And then, from that day on, our bond grew deeper and deeper and deeper as we went from Britney Spears to Christina Aguilera, Alyssa Keys, and all the girl groups, our Destiny Child, and all that, right? We, we went deeper in our relationship because the moment of, what, you two? I thought I was the only one. In fact, it was C.S. Lewis who once said, friendship is born at the moment when one person said to another, what, you two? I thought I was the only one. I think we acknowledge that we see vulnerability at the core 
of our relationship building. In order to go deeper, we ought to be vulnerable with one another. Author and researcher Brene Brown said, vulnerability is the first thing I look for in you. And she also said, it's the last thing I'm willing to show you. In you, it's courage and daring. In me, it's weakness. I think she hit it right on the point. We all desire to see it. We all want it. We all want to be part of a community that shares that. But we all struggle to be that to one another. According to Barna Research, only 50% of the people in a local church feel that they can be themselves at a church. Only one out of two feel like they can be themselves when they come to their church community. According to Webster Dictionary, vulnerability is defined as capable of being physically or emotionally wounded. Vulnerability is capable of being physically or emotionally wounded. It's open to attack or damage. Again, Brene Brown said, vulnerability is basically uncertainty. It's a risk and emotional exposure. As you think about the definition of vulnerability, the question that I have for you is, when's the last time you're willing to be like that with one another? When's the last time you went into a community group, a table talk, a DNA group, a woman's ministry, a men's fellowship, whatever it may be, and said, today I'm going to be emotionally and physically wounded for your sake. When's the last time you felt like that in your relationship with one another? Not only with one another, but how about with God? When's the last time you close your eyes in your prayers, you say, God, I'm going to lay everything down at your feet. We often live in a society where we demand productivity, performance, and perfection. These often stand in the opposition to vulnerability, as we see. However, we see that often the vulnerability is key to go deeper in our relationship, not with only one another in a community, but also with our God. This morning, as we continue in our journey to understand what it means for us to be a community of God, we'll examine what it means to become vulnerable with one another and with God. Not only for the sake of being authentic and genuine, being who we are, but also being genuine, authentic, who we are, not with only with one another to have more friends, but also in our relationship with God. How are we defined by in our relationship with God, and how does that relate to building a community in a local church? And we'll do that by looking into the story that John tells us in Jesus' interaction with Samaritan woman at the well, and how the vulnerability works in the community. First thing that we see in this text is that vulnerability requires a discourse. Vulnerability requires a discourse. We pick up the story in verse 1. It says, Now when Jesus learned that Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, we see that in verse 3, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, which is his hometown, and verse 4, and he had to pass through Samaria. 
So he came to a town called Samaria called Sakhar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about six hours, which is about noon at the time. This morning's story takes us on a journey on a Jesus to Samaria. Samaria, geographically, is located in the, just the north of Judea. And in order for Jesus to get from Judea to Galilee, he had to go through Samaria. And who are the Samaritans? And what's so surprising about the discourse that Jesus begins with the Samaritan woman at the well? In fact, the roots of Samaritan begins in 2 Kings chapter 17 in the Old Testament. The story is reported of the conquest of Samaria by a kingdom of Assyria. And many of the Israelites were exiled in 722 BC. What happened after was that this kingdom of Assyria repopulates this land by the conquered people that they bring in from the other parts of the world. And the remnants of the native Israelites then intermarried with other conquered people in the empire. And in their religious views, they were considered half-breeds. It's not the interracial issue was at hand, interfaith issue was at hand here. But this group was also that held on to the Pentateuch, first five books of the Bible as the only scripture for them. Judeans obviously thought Samaritans were not pure. They hated them. Samaritans, on the other hand, also hated the Judeans. And they claimed that they were the right ones for the heritage of Israel and claimed Jacob as their ancestors and their place of worship as a rightful place to worship. And the Jews got it all wrong. The both sides were thinking that they were right, but the both sides were not willing to engage in a dialogue as well. Needless to say, there was a deep-rooted hatred, disagreement, and conflict between these two groups. And the church historians tell us there has been point of violence, injustice, and just pure hatred that happened between these two sides. What is amazing in today's story is what Jesus does and demonstrates in starting this course, discourse with Samaritan woman. Here in the opening verses of John 4, we see that Jesus not only beginning this discourse, he goes out of his way to actually start one. In verse 4, we read that he had to pass through Samaria. And for us, it makes sense, right? If you were to go to from, let's say, Mars Parks or South Park, whatever maybe, to get to Huntersville, you go through the center city. And the fastest way for Jesus to go from Judea to Galilee is to go through Samaria. But for Judeans at the time, that's not how they went. Because they absolutely hated Samaritans so much, they would rather go around a long way to get to Galilee. Basically, they will cross the Jordan River, go around this plot of land, and cross the Jordan River again to get to Galilee to avoid interactions at all together. That's almost like us going from Myers Park. We're like, okay, in order for me to get to Huntersville, I'm not going to go to Center City, not only because of the traffic, but they were saying, like, I'm going to go around 485 on purpose to go around to Huntersville because I don't want to associate with anybody in a Center City which makes the trip much longer and much more difficult and dangerous at times. But notice what John says here in verse 4. He says, Jesus had to do it. Right? It's like he must go through this. He made his point 
to go against what the cultural norm at the time, and he wanted to, he had to pass through that. And why? Because he's got a divine appointment with the Samaritan woman. Jesus goes out of his way, and he must start this conversation. And it's not merely a conversation. It's not merely a discourse that will change the life of this woman. But as we see in this text, it changes the entire town as a result of this. As a result of this discourse that Jesus begins with this woman. And this is what it says in verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw the water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. Notice that Jesus starts the conversation. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is that you, a Jew, ask for me, a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? She's startled. She's wondering why, not even just Samaritan, but a man would speak to a woman in this day and age when men and women do not speak in public like this. And this is Jesus' response to her. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him. You would have started the conversation. And he would have given you the living water. You see, not only was Jesus discouraged about how she responded, he continues to pursue after her in starting out this discourse with one another. Jesus seeks it out. He searches for that. And through that, we see the gospel, gospel vulnerability begins with the discourse. It begins with the dialogue. It begins with the conversation. And before we get into the nature of it all, the most basic question about vulnerability that we could ask right now as we think about Jesus starting this conversation is, do you have this type of conversation with one another? Do you have this kind of discourse that not only talks about, hey, how was your week? Great, thank you, I'll see you next week. Well, when's the last time you had this conversation where you asked the deeper probing questions about what do you believe? Why do you believe what you believe? What has happened to you? Do you really know what is going on in your heart? Do you go out of your way in your relationship with not only with one another but with God to have those type of conversations? Is your prayer life is simply, God, thank you for today. Thank you for this food. Thank you for friends. Thank you for all that. Amen. Or is your conversation with the Lord? Lord, search me. Know me, the deepest parts of my heart. And is that type of conversation happening in the surroundings that you're surrounded by? Or are you so comfortable in your own spaces with those who whisper into your ears saying, you're fine, you're okay, I'm okay, you're okay, we're all okay, let's go home and have fun. Right? Please do not hear what I'm not saying. You need encouragement. I'm not saying you do not need it. You need it. But you also need to be probed, challenged, examined, Ask this deeper, thought-provoking, as well as deeper, revealing questions about who you are in a community of God. One of the things I learned when I first got married, a big lesson that I'm still learning today. Today's my wedding anniversary, by the way. Um, I, know, I know. I know. My wife is still blinded by God's grace. Um, I know she's still blinded by God's grace to stay with me. But um, one thing that I'm learning, I'm still learning today, is to listen to your wife at all times, right? And one of the things that she told me was, you need to go see a dentist. I'm like, why? You just got to go see a dentist because you're messed up. I'm like, yes, I do. Um, it's a confession time. I have, six root, I have done six root canals in my life. 
I know, sick, root canals are terrible, don't ever want that, don't ever get it ever again. And I have about three fake teeth in my, my teeth, not because I didn't brush, it's just that my teeth were aligned in a different way. But I think I shared about a little bit about last week as well, my distaste and my disgust and my deep-rooted hatred for a dentist. Because um, when you go to a dentist, what do, what do you have to do is you have to open wide, right? And you try, to, you try to open a little bit, try to hide it, but they say, open wide. I'm like, all right, I'm trying. Open wider. And then you, you open as much as you can. And before, I don't know about you, before I go to a dentist, I brush excessively. Uh, I floss like for the first time in three years, and I do like I buy like this really expensive mouthwash and all mouthwash, hoping that it will smell good, look good, and all the stuff. But dentist knows exactly what is going on. Not only so, he does what's called X-ray, right? And you can try to hide it all you want, but he knows exactly what is going on. He keeps on saying, "Open wide." He pokes and prods at all these different teeth one by one to see if need a root canal so he could pocket like thousands of dollars. No, not only that, but he wants to know exactly if something's wrong with you. Looking to see if there's anything wrong with you and goes into details and details, and he, he finishes up by cleaning everything up for you again and again and again. Church, I don't know about you, but I think that's what needs to happen within our community. Wouldn't it be amazing if our community group functioned like that? Open wide, but I see everything in there. Not just simply opening wide for the sake of opening wide to see everything that is wrong within your teeth, in your heart, but for the sake of saying that you need help, brother. You need help, sister. You need to be embraced. You need to be loved. You need to be forgiven. But you also need to confess your sins before the Lord. Wouldn't it be awesome if our DNA groups, our women's ministries, our one-on-one -on -one conversations, our community groups function like that, having those dentist moments of faith, saying, let's share deeply, honestly, open and wide, try to hide it all you want, but we see it, moments. We want going to hurt you. It will hurt to share, but we want to embrace that. One more about that. When we talk about openness and vulnerability, we often want Jesus figures to come into our lives. We want to be like Samaritan woman just waiting and for someone to come and ask us that question saying, how are you doing? Not just simply, hey, how are you doing? Bye. But how are you really doing? We want people to do that. And you ought to want that. And our leadership tries to do that with you. But notice that Samaritan woman is also engaging in this dialogue with Christ. Right? He's willing to open up and have this conversation. Not only you ought to want to have it, but I encourage you to go look for it. That means, what, how, how do you form this gospel vulnerability discourse? Find someone who is willing to do that with you. Join something. Join a community group. Go to a table talk. Go to a DNA groups. Find people or ask a pastor or elders to pray with you that's willing to ask deeper, probing questions that will start this conversation with you. Second is seek it out, ask for it. It's really hard to have those moments of, what, you too? I thought I was the only one, unless you're willing to open up and share. Can I encourage you, church? Look for it, share. And finally, the gospel of vulnerability starts with the discourse of deeper matters. Let's move beyond this simple, hey, I'm doing well, I'll see you next, next week. 
to, hey, how are you really doing in your relationship with God? What is going on in your marriage? May this church be a church that starts gospel vulnerability discourse with one another. Second thing that we see from this text is not only the vulnerability requires a discourse, vulnerability restores one's dignity. Vulnerability restores one's dignity. Upon the start of this discourse, we see Christ moving and speaking and restoring the dignity of this woman. What do I mean by restoring her dignity? Now, no longer, as we see from this dialogue that Christ has with this woman, no longer is she defined by her geographical boundaries. No longer is she bound by the fact that she's a woman. No longer is she bound by her cultural identity or even religious beliefs. Now, as she walks through in this conversation with Christ, she's restored to be who she is in light of who God is. That's what we see in verse 11. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw the water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself and did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus responds by saying, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. And this is the gospel, church. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman responds by saying, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And Jesus probes more in verse 16, doesn't he? He says to her, Go, call your husband and come here. And the woman responds by saying, I have no husband. And Jesus responds, You are right, saying that you don't have a husband. And I'm paraphrasing here. For you have had five husbands, and one you have is not your husband. What you said is true. And she says, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. And now Jesus responds by saying, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. Um, we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming when now is here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. The Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And this discourse ends with Christ saying, I who speak to you am he. What a phenomenal message of the gospel truth. This story is often told by many commentators and many, many in the past to highlight how Jesus moves the conversation along with this woman who does not want to talk about herself. Right? And a lot of commentators will say, yes, the core issue here is that she has five husbands here, and something's wrong with that. And she deflects all these questions, and she needs to come to terms with who she is. And oftentimes, our commentators point, out, point that out as one of the keys to being vulnerable with the Lord. And I think there is the aspect of, yes, she has five husbands, and that's part of struggle that she has. But in a culture, in a time, where the power to divorce somebody and power to provide financially resided with men, it's really hard to see that that is the only thing that defines her. On the other hand, the early church fathers not only focused on her sexuality, but the entire discourse as a way that God reveals to her what she really believes in at the core of who she is. And that not only involves her sexuality, her marital relationship with the five husbands supposedly that she had, 
but that also includes what she believes about where to worship, how to worship, or what kind of worship style and background it needs to be at. On top of that, it also talks about Samaritan's perspective on who Messiah ought to be. Like I shared with you before, Samaritans held on to the first five books of the Bible. So they thought a Messiah is like a prophet like Moses that is to come. So not only is Jesus unpacking her sexuality, her gender roles, and her marital status as part of who she is, he's also unpacking for her her religious background, her cultural beliefs, and how she was raised to be. In fact, some commentators would actually compare and contrast chapter 3 of Nicodemus, a Jewish man, coming to Christ in the middle of the night, hiding from people to have this discourse and conversation to fight against Christ, to chapter 4 of this Gentile woman, a woman at that, in the broad daylight, conversing with the men at the noon hour. Once again, as we read about this story, not only is Jesus focused upon her sexuality, but this difficult conversation deals with her political views, Samaritans versus, Jim, uh, versus Jews, her sexuality, men versus women, of whom she worships, how she worships, and the aspect of worship is highlighted because what you worship reveals everything about who you are. As James, uh, author James K. Smith says, you are what you love. Or another way to say is you are what you worship, isn't it? And what ethnic, cultural, societal view that you subscribe to and believe also inform who you are. And what Jesus does here in this dialogue, I believe, is more complex than her just mere confession that she had five husbands. Rather, what Jesus does is here is drying out her thought process, what she's been taught to believe, and ultimately leading to the revelation of who Christ is by the statement, I who speak to you is am he. And Jesus aims to draw not only her sexual marital identity, but the entire core being of a person. She wants to deal with that. In the process of this dialogue, not only does he speak to her, but he restores her dignity to show her who she ought to be, who she's meant to be, who she's meant to worship, who she's meant to be saved by. In fact, she talks about Messiah to expect, and she says, I am that person you must look forward to. I think our tendency often when we read stories like this is to focus on her past, her adulterous relationships perhaps. But the gospel, church, focuses on her conversion, her conversation, growth, testimony, and evangelistic zeal that comes out of that. We tend to focus only on how she comes to know who she is, knowledge of myself. But the gospel focuses on how Jesus reveals himself, and in response, she knows who she is. And that's what the gospel says. And the true vulnerability cannot happen without you being fully content in his goodness for you. Our tendency in our vulnerability is, wow, I can't believe you struggle with that. What's wrong with you? Right? But the gospel, vulnerability, says, not about your sin, but wow, 
I can't believe God could save someone like you, but I can't believe God could use someone like you, right? We struggle with vulnerability because we focus so much on sin rather than the power of God that could transform us. And I believe that's where the gospel vulnerability becomes transformative than descriptive. What I mean by transformative is the gospel vulnerability doesn't end that, here's who I am, that's who I am, I want to be genuine, just accept me as who I am, and don't ask me any question about it, don't challenge me on it, that's who I am, I just want to be accepted as who I am. That's descriptive vulnerability, that's not a gospel vulnerability. The transformative vulnerability, according to scripture, says, this is who I am, but I need grace. This is who I am, my beliefs, how I was raised, what I was taught to believe, but I need grace. I need to change. And the gospel says, you can change. Not because you're capable of changing, but because who he is speaking to you has power to change you. That's the gospel transformative vulnerability we all out to strive for in the church. And when God does that in you, then your dignity can be restored as we are meant to be. And you're probably wondering, that sounds very familiar. If you're a member of Christ Central Church, what is our vision statement? It says, freeing people to enjoy God, hear His truth, grow in diverse community, and engage the world with the renewed dignity that comes from Christ. Church, how do we engage the world with renewed dignity? First, as our vision statement reminds us, that we need to hear his truth and be free by the gospel. To hear God say, I love you despite your sin. I sent my son to die for you no matter what you have done. Believe in me and you'll be saved. We need to hear his truth to be free, to be accepted as we are in light of God is. But second, we also need this to happen in our diverse, diverse community. Not just talking about racial diversity here, but our generational diversity, and our socioeconomical diversity, and dare I say, in our political diversity. But all those diversity must be rooted in the gospel first. And if we are following our vision statement as a church, not only for our church, but all the churches, our prayer is that God will take us on a journey of transformative vulnerability that will restore your dignity is who you were meant to be. And to engage the world, testify to the Lord that you and I can be saved by grace and grace alone. And this final point that we see, don't we? The vulnerability, gospel vulnerability, results in a discipleship. Gospel vulnerability results in a discipleship. Today's story reaches its climax upon the Samaritan woman's realization of who Christ is. And that's why we read in verse 28. So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and they were coming to him. And verse 39, many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So that when the Samaritan came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there for two days. And many more believed because of his word, and they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, 
for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed Savior of the world. Amen. Man, why are we so often amazed at her testimony? Because not only because the entire crowd comes, but because we're amazed at her. Honestly, oftentimes we're amazed at her testimony because we're amazed at her, her story. And we focus on who she is as a story of this great magnitude. Hence, when we read this portion of the scripture, we often focus on the latter parts of verse 29. A man who told me everything that I have, all that I ever did. And we're like, wow, that's amazing. He knows exactly everything that she has done. And we often focus upon her and her background as the main point of the story. But I think we should focus on something else. Rather, we should be focusing on, on the wonder and the amazement that this Samaritan woman's life is changed. And the gospel story is proclaimed through this woman. It's not just the message itself, but how God is able to preach this message through a Samaritan woman to the town at large. That's what we have to focus on. So we must place her, man told me all that I ever did must be placed in the context of what she says. Come and see. Come and see this amazing person that told me everything I have done. Come and see him, not my sin, not my background. Come and see this guy who's able to do amazing things through me, even someone like me. The invitation of come and see echoes on the witness of Philip in Acts chapter 146. Philip is a deacon. A narrative places this woman on a par with Jesus' other disciples who brought this message to the world. Here in her transformative vulnerability before Christ, she in turn becomes a voice that brings others to Christ, and that's discipleship. That church is what it means to be a church, a community of God, what a follower of Christ ought to do to proclaim what has happened to her life to the watching world to say, come and see someone like me can be saved by this Christ, then you ought to come and see who can do that for you too. That's what it means to be a church. Church is not a community where you come and feel comfortable and like being here and check off saying, I went to church this Sunday. That's not a church. That's a social club at its best. They might as well go to YMCA, right? But church ought to be a place where you come and experience this transformative grace of God and go and tell the watching world, come and see this Christ that has saved my soul, saved my life. And that's what it means to be vulnerable before the Lord and with one another. By definition, gospel vulnerability that leads to discipleship is this. Freedom of being fully known and being fully accepted and freedom to fully proclaim to the world, come and see. And get this, church. Not only with our Savior, we ought to, we're called to do that. We're called to do that within our community. To say, hey, I am not well. I'm not telling you to come because I'm well. I'm not telling you to come because my life is so great. I'm not telling you to come because I'm emotionally, spiritually healthy. I'm in the process. But come, join me as we work towards growing in our relationship with one another and with God. And that is true discipleship. That is what it means to take our cross and follow after him. 
I am. Uh, I grew up in Chicago, and um, in Chicago, uh, our speed limit I think is still 55 or 65. But if you ever driven in Chicago Highway, we all drive 10 miles over. We all do. It's like I don't know why it's 55 miles over, 55 miles. But every driver we drive 65 miles together or 70 miles. And whoever drives less than 70, we look at them and say, "What is wrong with you? Like this is the norm." And if you go on the highway in Chicago, we all drive fast. And I, I came to Charlotte, North Carolina, and uh, I think we drive slow here, right? Uh, Charlotte, North Carolina, one of the things I love about our city is that we're so nice, right? If there is a merger lane, everybody lines up to the one lane before the, uh, the, the merger lane closes, and we're all waiting patiently for this to happen. I'm a Chicago driver, you know? I'm thinking, there's a merger lane for a reason. I'm gonna get all the way to the front and just merge in. Right? And I'm that type of driver, and, and confession once again, and I feel like I'm confessing so much. Um, I have road rage. Um, I just get so mad for no reason at people that do not drive well. It's not like I'm the best driver either. Whoever drives slow, I get mad at them. Whoever drives fast, I get mad at them. Because I'm thinking, you must keep the law, but just go five miles over. So confession is sometimes I will go, I will cut somebody off, and I will slow down on purpose to teach the person a lesson saying, you must follow my law, my rule, because I'm the law here. Sometimes I'll cut in, and if someone does not let me cut in, I'll look at them and say, what's wrong with you? Right? But if someone tries to cut me, I'll say, no, you cannot. You know? This is my highway, my lane, and I think I'm okay because I'm a Chicago driver, right? And you know, as I drive with my family, there's always a voice of reason that speaks to me, a literal voice from my wife, always. <laughs> And she looks at me and says, and she's not doing this maliciously, but she says, are you a pastor? <laughs> or sometimes she would say, Pastor Josh. <laughs> and I would look at her and say, what does that mean? It has nothing to do with this. <laughs> and then there's a kicker right at the end, and she says, only if the church people knew. And I, oh, man. Then I drive like 10 miles under. Um, <laughs> And you know, honestly, church, that's true. Not just in how I drive, but man, oh man. I know, right? If you were to spend a day with me, you'll wonder, is this guy a pastor? <laughs> like, what's wrong with this dude? Am I supposed to listen to him on Sunday preaching the word? Is he applying the word in his life in the first place? Does he love his wife? Does he really care for his son? What's wrong with him? He talks about his son all the time. But does he really, really care about him, or does he like his phone more? And honestly... I'll be the first one to admit I am nowhere nearby the cross of Christ. Oftentimes, the words of, are you a pastor, ring so true in my heart, or only if people knew, really is a deep, growing thorn in my heart. Um, pastor Omari is leading our pastoral staff in this thing called the pastoral rhythm. And I haven't, I've yet to sign this letter yet because I've been thinking about it, meditating upon it, but I think I need to sign it because this letter talks about we're going to ask difficult questions. We're going to ask one another deep spiritual questions to one another, not only about who I am, but in our relationship with our wives. And we're going to ask you to confess and have some moments with God, and we need that because we as pastors need gospel vulnerability. We as pastors need transformative vulnerability where we confess are forgiven so that 
we can fully proclaim Christ on Sunday. And I'm grateful that Pastor Mari brought it up. And I'm grateful that Pastor Derek and Pastor Howard are on board. And I've been, I'm a new pastor here, but I'm a mess. And you hired the wrong pastor, right? And I think all our pastors are mess. I'm sorry, right? The pastor Howard's not here. He's like, what's wrong with you? But we are. If you're looking for a church that has a perfect leadership with guys that are all well to get put together, a church that's so loving, a program that's top-notch, you're in the wrong church. I found that out pretty quickly, too, right? Because I know who I am. But if you're looking for a church that really wants to share our openness, honesty, vulnerability, let's try that here together. You, me, leaders, pastors, whoever it may be, I think that's what it means to build a church of Christ. I need Christ. You need Christ. And as we gather together in our joint effort of what it means to share, be transformed by the gospel of grace, I think we're headed somewhere. And when we close our eyes, church, in a little bit we're going to pray, you know this. You can mask it all you want on a Sunday. You can mask it all you want in the community groups. But when you close your eyes, bow your heads, you know who you are in light of who God is. And this is the gospel this morning. Even that part of you, he wants you. He reminds us again and again on Sunday as you're invited to come to his place that he loves you. He brings different people that will challenge your assumptions about your life, the ways you've been raised to remind you that he loves you to the point that he cannot leave you alone. He's going to bring different people to rebuke you, to challenge you, to be under the authority of the leadership, not because he wants to control your life, because he loves you. And he cannot see you falling off the cliff. So he's going to chase after you and to remind you again that he loves you and he loves you and he loves you. And guys, when you embrace that truth in your life, you're going to testify. You cannot help but to testify. John 20, 31, this is why John wrote this gospel. But these are written so that they may believe, you may believe that Jesus is Christ, the Son of God, and by believing, you may have life in his name. And notice the effect of Samaritan woman's discipleship. It is no longer because what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves that we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. If John is aiming to produce disciples, Samaritan woman, in her true gospel vulnerability, has become one. And I pray that our church will be a church like that. Let's pray. As you close your eyes, bow your heads. As we shared before, you can't fake it. God knows. I may not know. No one may know. Your wife may not even know. Your husband may not know. God knows. Father, that's our confession, Lord, as we close our eyes, bow our heads. You know us. You know the deepest parts of us. You know the things that we struggle with, sins that we have often hidden away, sins that we have not confessed to others, even to those who are close to us. The sins that we have often struggled with in our relationship with you and with others. We also confess there are sins that we have committed, but sins that we have omitted in our lives. The people we should have loved to pass away. Things that we should have done, we have not done. But Lord, we come wanting to be vulnerable before you, saying, Lord, I need you. I need you to change me. And Lord, we believe that you have the power to do so. We pray that Lord will continue to be that community. In Christ's name we pray.
Amen.